reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Thread Podcast with Dave Pochter, and I'm his co-host, Hannah D'Souza. Now, Dave made fun of me earlier for the way I pronounced his name. So I felt like before we jump in, did I pronounce it correctly, Dave? <laughs> Let's say it again. Let's make Dave sure. Dave Pokta. Might just be my accent. Pokta. See, there it is. When Hannah's not paying attention, her British accent kicks in and there sometimes an R shows up after and it becomes <laughs> okay. Pokta. So no R. I'm just saying. It happened. I am back home. So maybe that's no why. No R. Just P-O-C-T-A. My accent is stronger. Yes. Where are you today? I am in London. I got back last week. so. And our listeners don't really know this, but they can probably tell by your accent. You're actually from London. I am London. from London. Yeah. My parents think I've lost my accent a little bit, but from being in the States, but I, think, I think I'm still holding on, holding on to it. Okay. I think it's pretty clear to most of us Americans that you still have your <laughs> British accent. That's good. I'm glad. So, you know, it's funny, is it, have you ever watched a, a series, a show, like all the way through and then gone back and rewatched earlier episodes of a sitcom? Yes. Yeah. I think The Office, and I was speaking about that earlier. That's one I do find myself going back to. The American one, actually, not the British one, sadly. The American Office. So part of what's fun about this, and I think will be fun about our podcast, is that you find when you go back and watch early episodes, after you've watched it all the way through, you go, wow, those actors really were trying to work it yep. out in the <laughs> early episodes. Like in The Office, Jim and yeah. Pam and even Michael. Michael's kind of really, I mean, Michael's quirky throughout, Definitely. but he's quirky. So anyway, <laughs> I think that'll be our podcast. We'll work some stuff out. You'll learn how to say my I name. We'll not drop microphones. <laughs> um, hopefully, we'll kind of find our yep. way. And I'm sure we'll look back and think, wow, what were we doing back then? But that's okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, we could jump in to our topic today. I'm excited about it because we're talking about our image of God, why it matters what our image of God is, what shapes our image of God, and how do we change our image of God if it needs to be changed. So that might be a good way in, Dave. Why? Does our image of God or the way we view God, why does it matter? Yeah, we wanted to start here because our image of God really shapes the way that we think about our whole spiritual life. It actually affects the way we treat one another. It affects that we react to the idea of living in obedience to God or walking with God. And so I think it's a really important starting place for this podcast is to actually talk about why this is such a big deal and the need for us to continue to shape our image of God. So there's this great passage in Zephaniah that, that often stands in contrast to the way people see God. So Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So I think to your question, why does it matter? 
if your default image of God is not he delights in me or he rejoices over me with singing, then I think it's important for us to keep talking about this because that's the goal is we're healthiest when we see God that way. So I think a good question, Hannah, to start thinking about as we go down this road is what really shapes our image of God. So for you, when you think about your own view of God, your image of God, what do you think has shaped it Mm. over your lifetime? Oh, I think about kind of the formative years when you're beginning to understand who God is. I think family plays a big role in kind of shaping your image of God. Parents, particularly father figures. I know for me, my dad was a big person that shaped my view of God growing up. Yeah, I also think spiritual leaders, like those in positions of authority, spiritual authority can have a sway or affect the way we view God for better or worse. Experiences, definitely, whether it's kind of the joys of life or disappointment and hurts that we experience, those also contribute to your image of God changing and evolving. So those are some things I can think of. Those are great answers. And I think that's true of all of us, that we have all these things that create this default image. And I I think it's important to think about that with default image. So with computers, which most of us are now familiar with, a phone, an iPad, a computer, we have this default settings. And one of the things that's kind of a joke in my marriage, Beth and I have been married 32 Mm -hmm. years, and she comes to me with her computer (laughs) problems. And all the time, my first question is, have you rebooted Mm, your computer? When's the last time you rebooted your computer? Because you got to go back to the default settings to first start figuring out what went wrong. And if the default settings are broken, then, you know, then there's other problems with the computer. So we all have this kind of default setting with God. And that default setting comes up when we immediately think about God, when we're in a crisis, when we sit down to have a quiet time, we have this kind of image that comes up. And you know, when we think about images, there's really two kind of ways of thinking about images. One that's really helpful, one that can be problematic, but understanding this is important. One is an icon. An image can be an icon or an image can be an idol. What is the difference, I guess? Firstly, that's my first question between an icon and an, an idol. So an icon is meant to be a window. when we look at something as an image that's an icon, it's something we see through. It's a link. It's a doorway. So for scripture, right, when we think about a metaphor, a metaphor in that sense is an icon. A metaphor helps us to see God in a way that words can't capture. And this is the real challenge as we pursue an image of God is that God is bigger than anything we could possibly imagine. So even One of my favorite words about God is God is ineffable, unexplainable, beyond description. And so if we ever get fixed, our image of God gets fixed, it becomes an idol. An icon becomes something we see through that helps us to see the glory, the the majesty of God. So in Leviticus, you know, there's a reason why God says in Leviticus 26, for example, do not make idols or set up an image of sacred stone for yourself. Don't place a carved stone in your land and bow down before it. So God is basically saying, don't get a fixed image that you worship. And he goes on and he just says, I am the Lord, your God. 
Now, one of the things we'll end up talking a lot about in this podcast is the difference between Lord and God. So God is generic God, creator. Lord is Yahweh's name, our personal God. And so what he's saying here is, I want to be your personal God. I want you to know me, and I don't want you to get fixated on an idol. In other words, I want you to look at me through the window and and explore and imagine that. So, Hannah, I'd ask you in your growth and your development as a spiritual person, have you seen your image of God grow and change over the years? Mm. I love the way you distinguish between the two, kind of that idea of a fixed image and one that's more fluid or ineffable, as you said. Because definitely, I think reading the Bible, I remember being struck by, at various points in my kind of journey with God, the different metaphors that he uses to relate to us, to relate to mankind, whether it's he's the potter and we're the clay, the shepherd and the sheep, the father, the child, even the husband and the wife. I mean, it seemed like there are even increasing levels of intimacy even in those metaphors, those ways of relating to us. And I think when I first started kind of reading the Bible as a teenager, I wasn't ready for some of those that kind of intimacy. And it actually makes me think of a verse, I think it's in Mark 4, where Jesus, it says that he taught his disciples as much as they could understand. And I think even those metaphors, when God probably knows we're not ready for each one, and each one kind of comes at a different season or would mean more to us in different seasons of our journey. I think that's definitely been the case for me. And actually, even now, as I'm studying theology and been exposed to different ideas, people, or even questions in myself that are arising. I think my image of God actually doesn't feel as clear as perhaps the earlier seasons in my Christianity even. It kind of feels like a camera that's not completely in focus, a little blurry, and which is a, actually a good question. I think when that happens, Dave, like when it's unclear kind of the way we're our image of God or maybe tainted from experiences or yeah, out of focus, how do we change it? How do we correct it or get it back in focus or in focus for the first time? Yeah. So that's really what I want us to talk about here for the rest of our time is how do we really shape that? How do we transition it? How do we change that default image? And I think it's got to be set up front. It's not easy. I mean, this is the journey. This is the process of our spiritual growth and why it's, it is something that we're pursuing every day. So I would say there's probably five things that can be helpful for people to think about with this. And maybe we'll just start and talk through these. The first being learning from others. We need the great cloud of witnesses around us. So reading books articles, podcasts that we listen to, <laughs> like Thread. The hope is that it really helps people to understand God differently, to push the way they think about God, to challenge the way that they think about God. I was just reading one of my favorite contemporary philosophers is named Jean-Luc Marion, and he was being interviewed, and he had this really interesting quote. He said, quote, concept, he said, you know, when you're reading if you pick up a book and you start reading it and you understand it all, put the book down. You could write that book. You don't need to read that book. Pick up a book that challenges the way you think and that's hard to understand. And I thought, wow, there's something really, really insightful there about how we have to stretch ourselves, especially when it comes to the way that we view God. 
So one of the things that I think is going to be fun for our listeners to learn about you, Hannah, is that you studied Victorian literature mm -hmm. at Oxford, right? Everyone's favorite topic. And you're now at Harvard, Victorian <laughs> yeah. literature. It usually comes you know, up at dinner yeah. parties. <laughs> but <laughs> it does give you an insight that, that I think would be really helpful in this conversation. So have you noticed when you study Victorian literature, when you look at Victorian literature, that often God is portrayed certain ways in different eras. So when you're looking at Victorian literature and you're reading it, my guess is there's a way that God would be portrayed in that era that you notice when you're reading that. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I think you don't want to generalize too much, but there are definitely trends that I even ex encountered through reading novels from the Victorian period, treaties. Something that struck me was how fluent people were with scripture like you'd read a novel and they'd quote a bible verse with no quotation marks just with the assumption that everyone knows this everyone believes this and that kind of awareness of god just permeates through the literature i took a class on victorian science actually and there was a paper an um, astronomy paper that i felt like could literally have been taken out of the book of psalms just how involved or just the language about god that was used and him being intricately involved in the creation of the stars and the galaxies. And, and that struck me. We, we definitely see, though, that a, a shift in that period, and some might even know it as kind of the age of doubt. There was a kind of a turning point where different discoveries coming out and Darwin publishing The Origin of Species and things, religion and science went from kind of being in harmony or that view of God being true, kind of there was a shift there and people started to have doubts and actually one of the, I wrote my dissertation on the Brontes. Some people might know Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights, those novels, but they, their doubts, and actually this is a trope in a lot of Victorian novels, it kind of comes out in the portrayal of religious figures and characters, the clergy, and not always portrayed favorably. And I think that's a sign of this doubt creeping into the culture. And definitely in the Brontes, we see that too. I and mean, actually, that's what drew me, they're what kind of drew me to that period because I saw, saw my own doubts reflected. <laughs> In some of theirs, the youngest of the Brontes, and she was 22 and wrote a poem called The Doubter's Prayer. And I connected a lot with that as a 22-year-old reading it. So there are definitely tropes, tropes there. But what, what do you think, or why is that important, to go back to your question, to read outside of kind of our comfort zone or even outside of our era, perhaps, in, when it comes to kind of um, our image of God or forming that? Yeah, your example's really poignant. I think what we see is over time, we've got 2,000 years of Christian history now to look at, and as we see this evolution or growth or development of the way God is viewed, and we have this opportunity to go back and read people's views of God in these different eras, it really expands the way we see God. I think the scriptures call us to really embrace the great cloud of witnesses, and so that's a huge part of the ability to study and the fact that we have all these things written that we can go back and read, it really helps us to challenge the way we think. Mm, that's great. So what would be the second way that can help us change then our, our image of God? So one that's going to be really big in this podcast is how we reshape our story, our narrative. The origin story is always important for the superhero, right? So you'll see that the Batman origin story or Hulk's origin story or what it really shapes the, the reasons, 
the orientation, the direction. Our origin story is so critical. And, you know, we have a general understanding of it, but a lot of Christians don't really have a firm grasp on the meta narrative, the big picture. And that's what this podcast really is going to be doing. So there's an example of how this plays out in Deuteronomy. And, you know, Deuteronomy is right before they're going into the promised land. They've spent 40 years in the desert and they're just about to cross over. And now God is trying to help them think about the generational nature of passing on the story. And so there's this great text that, Hannah, maybe you could read for us in Deuteronomy 6.20 that talks about this that I think will give it some framework. So in Deuteronomy 6 verse 20, it reads, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. This passage reveals a lot about the way God wants us to process our origin story. So clearly, we see in this text that the expectation is that we are passing on the commands of God to our kids. But when we teach our kids to live in obedience to God and to do all the right things, there's the inevitable why. Why, daddy? Why, mommy? And so in this text, what God says is when the question why comes up, your answer is really important. Why do we obey? Because of our story. We were enslaved. God rescued us. He brought us into greener pastures. He gave us the promised land. And the reason that we obey is because it's for our benefit. When we obey God, we prosper. So obedience is actually because God loves us. He knows what will benefit us even when we don't understand the why. Now, that I think leads us to maybe the third way that can help us. So if we were to think about that one as, how we reshape our image of God comes from really getting to know our origin story, our narrative, the meta-narrative. The third, I would say, is that we have to then develop a real trust, a stronger trust in God's love for us. So one of the things that I think we have to talk a lot more about is enjoying God and the importance of the enjoyment of God. Because when we really enjoy a relationship, it changes the way we feel about that relationship. I've been married, as I said, for 32 years. If my relationship did not have enjoyment in it, it would not be a fun, (laughs) pleasant, growing, dynamic relationship. And fortunately, Beth and I have all kinds of things that we love and enjoy together. And we enjoy uh, being together and talking every night and and all the things that come with with a great relationship. So I think it's important to think about that enjoyment Mm. of God. I love that you mentioned enjoyment because I actually think for some, the idea of enjoying God might be new or unfamiliar or even a challenging concept, particularly if your image of God was maybe growing up when we talked about how our image of God was formed is what was one of fear, which I think was the case for me. It was more the fear of hell rather than the pull of God or the pull of heaven that 
was initially the biggest motivator for me actually makes me think of the proverb, I think it's Proverbs 8, that says fear is the beginning of wisdom, but definitely not the end. I think that can't be the thing that kind of pulls us in. I think it is this enjoyment has to be the thing that sustains us and takes us deeper. What would you say, Dave, are ways that you enjoy God? This has been something I've actually really worked on. I, I really love, I lean into the enjoyment of life and, and how I see that very directly connected to God. So for me, it's music. People who are watching us on video will see I have a vinyl yep, record collection behind records. me. I listen to music all day long. Books bring me great enjoyment. Mm. Yeah, so music, reading, of course. I mean, I love to read and explore. I enjoy God that way. Part of my enjoyment with God every morning is I get my mm -hmm. cup of coffee, Dave which I'm still enjoying. And I sit here in this space and I put on... Dave loves his coffee. That's true. Put on my headphones and I have my fountain pens and my different colors and I have my journal and I just love to write and pray and enjoy that moment, that time, right? Wherever that experience goes for me. So that, you know, that, that idea of enjoyment with God is something that I, maybe it comes a little natural for me. I love life and, but I love to connect all the beauties of life to my relationship with God. So part of that, so this really leads us into one of the big, the big ones, one of the big ones for making this shift and change in our image of God, which is number four, contemplation. Contemplation sometimes is really misunderstood and it gives, it gets a bad rap in some Christian circles. And I, I want to explain this, and I think this is going to be a really important theme that comes up throughout this podcast. What is contemplation and why is it so important? So contemplation at its core is this idea that we have to bring whatever we read, whatever we experience, whatever we enjoy, we have to bring it in and internalize it. It has to become part of us. It has to be brought into conversation with our default image. And it has to be wrestled out, right? It has to be processed. And so when we sit there and we read a passage of scripture that doesn't align with the way that we naturally respond to God, we have to wrestle that out in contemplation. So contemplation can apply to a lot of things. Beauty and the majesty of nature, it's important for us to contemplate that to process that, to internalize that, because it helps to shape our image of God. And so even as an example, you know, when you think of the, the story of Job, I mean, Job is wrestling theologically. He's wrestling existentially yep. <laughs> with this experience. Everything's falling apart. His friends are trying to make sense of it. He's trying to make sense of it. But when you think about how he's confronted by God, if you want to use the word confronted or engaged by God, what does God bring to the table immediately? Consider nature. Consider the creation. And by being immersed in this view of creation, of nature, it just immediately helps him to reorient himself theologically and existentially. And so all of a sudden, he has a different perspective of his spiritual life because of his relationship with nature. So we see that throughout the Psalms. We see it throughout Genesis and, and all these other ways that nature is an integral part of that. So Psalm 8 is actually a great example 
of how nature can help frame our relationship with God. That's funny that you mentioned Psalm 8, because I last week was walking through campus and one of the Harvard buildings, it's actually the philosophy building, has a verse from Psalm 8 inscribed on it. And it's one that says, What is mankind that you what is man that you thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou art mindful of him? I think it was built in the 1900s. So I don't know if they would do that today if the building was built, but I love that it was up there. It's kind of a reminder of, yeah, these things you're talking about. Okay, but so it's funny about that verse, that being up there, to understand that what is man that you're mindful of him, you actually have to look at the verse before, which actually gives it context, which is the nature piece. When he says, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful? I mean, so even in that, right, we see the importance of nature, creation is what gives us the context to frame who is man that you are mindful of him. So I love that, that that's on that Harvard philosophy building but it actually makes the point. So when you, I mean, when you think, Hannah, of your favorite aspects of nature and just contemplating the beauty of nature, what share with us about oh, wow. what that's like for you. There are, well, there are so many that come to mind. I think sunsets and sunrises, the obvious one when I'm awake for the sunrise. <laughs> but I love that they're beautiful, whether we're there to appreciate them or not, which I think probably speaks a lot to the nature of God. When I was growing up, I had a weird obsession with pine cones. Um, would collect that every walk I could, there'd be one in my pocket on, after a walk <laughs> and that'd line up in my room. But I think it was the detail in them that drew me in the symmetry. And actually, I'm, I love that we're talking about beauty as well, because I think we cannot always see that as having function beauty or give it the weight that it should have. I remember reading through the Bible for the first time and being shocked by the amount of detail that went into descriptions of like the temple, for example, and kings and thinking, wow, there's a lot of detail here about cherubim and floors and curtains and pomegranates and things. But it makes me think, wow, beauty is important to God. And that detail is important to God and is a reflection of Him. So important. So, you know, what's really cool about that is, you know, that I love that observation you made because we underestimate the role that beauty plays, I think, a lot today. And, you know, I think in some churches, you know, we just, we rent the, the most convenient building and it's easy to feel critical of denominations or other church traditions that have really invested and spent a lot of money on beautiful buildings. So if we think about this, this beauty as icons, right, not idols, it's not about the, worshiping the building or the art piece, the beautiful painting, the beautiful piece of music, the poem. They're icons. They're windows into the divine. And I think that has a lot to do with this conversation is how beauty works. Beauty is meant to be an icon that draws us into the glory of God. So let's talk about this other aspect of contemplation. So we contemplate beauty. I think we also have to contemplate the love of God, the delight of God. You know, the Bible talks about God, as we said in Zephaniah 3, God delights in us. But one of the, the consistent themes we're going to see in the scriptures is God's presence, his insistence on his presence. 
he insists on walking with us in the garden. He insists on being at the center of the tabernacle in a cloud and pillar of fire. He insists on being at the center of the temple when it's established and built. He insists on coming down personally in Jesus Christ to be present with us. He insists that when we go to, you know, have the eternal dwelling place, whatever that is, that his presence is felt. I mean, God wants us to know he's with us. Even when we're baptized, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes and resides with us. Presence is so important because God wants to be with us. And so even in Jesus' parables, you see this. Probably the best example is Luke 15, the prodigally generous father. So you have these two sons, one's just stupid. He just goes off and spends his inheritance and wants to be rebellious. And you see this just stately, solid, delighting in his son figure who's standing at the window waiting for his son to get stupid out of his life and come back. And he runs out and, you know, throws the robe on him and delights in him and says, let's throw a party for you. It's just that image that Jesus is painting, right? Is the father delights in us. I love that. I love that you changed the title to the prodigally generous father rather than the prodigal son. Kind of that, the focus being on him and his generosity. Yeah. So prodigal meaning an overabundance. And I think we can make the story about you know, the overabundance of sin, but it's really, that story's really about the overabundance of the generosity of the Father. So, Hannah, for you, I mean, I'm sure you have images in your own mind about what helps you delight in, how, how you see God delighting in you. Um, what comes to mind when you think about how God delights in you? Do you have images or ideas or things that help yeah, shape that? You know, I think this can also be a, a hard concept to grasp. Like, even when you began reading Zephaniah, I was thinking, do I believe that, that he delights in me or rejoices over me with singing? Um, what has helped me most recently, actually, is my, my sister having a baby. So my nephew being born two years ago, his name is Leon. I'm sure he'll come up again in this podcast because we love him. But I think watching my sister, Leon. her obsession with him, and then by extension, the whole family's obsession with him, has actually really helped me grasp better how God delights in us. We have our family WhatsApp group. I feel like now it's the Leon appreciation group because it's just full of photos and videos of literally the, the smallest thing, his first haircut, a picture of him sleeping or wearing a cute outfit. Actually, this past week, it was just a three-minute video of him eating a chicken leg that, of course, I watched the whole three minutes because we love him. But it really made me think if, wow, if God is as obsessed with me or yeah and and us the same way that we are with him that that yeah that's remarkable to me i became a grandfather two and a half years ago and i will tell you being a father helps you shape your image of god because you delight in your kids but when the grand ladies we call them the grand ladies two little girls when the grand ladies came around it's it's just a whole nother level of delight like if I'm in the same room with them, you're just going to see a smile ear to ear. And I don't care what they're doing. I'm just <laughs> excited to be around wow. them. All right. Let's finish our last one, number five. So this all has to be really brought back to the importance of community and relationships with others, because that really does help us and shapes our image of God. 
So as we work on all these things, we've got to process it with one another. You know, as we said, Jesus came to really, in in many ways, help us to rethink our image of God. His presence helped us to rethink the image of God from the image that we often draw from the Old Testament. And one of the things that's interesting about his comment in John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. I think this applies to this idea as well, that in our relationships, just as Jesus really worked to try to help shape, reform, and mature the image of God with his disciples and with people around him, that we need to do that as well. We have to help each other. So whether that's through spiritual direction or seeing a a therapist or a trusted spiritual friend or mentor, that idea of those kind of relationships that we're processing these things together is really important. So one of the things I find myself doing, especially with younger Christians, is when they react a certain way or they think that God's a certain way, I often find myself saying to them, God is not like that. Because you can see that they have an image of God that's authoritarian or, you know, over pedantic or, you know, watching their every move. And I'm like, nope, God's not like that. And I think we need each other for that. Mm. Right. I love that phrase. I need to start saying that. (laughs) I also, yeah, I love the idea of actually bringing others into the formation of our image of God. Um, I think our tendency is to individualism, to kind of keep that separate and not let them speak to that. I think a danger, though, or maybe a a question I have for you is, as I mentioned earlier, I think people can affect our view of God in not so positive ways. I know I mentioned earlier parents or father figures, and for some that might be a sensitive topic or or an absent father even, as well as, yeah, as I mentioned earlier as well, spiritual leaders or people listening that might have been hurt by those in spiritual positions of authority that's kind of affected their walk with God. So how do we strike that balance of kind of letting people in to speak to kind of our image of God and help it form while also kind of protecting ourselves in a way from what might not be beneficial? Yeah, we certainly have to own the process and we've got to learn how to navigate for ourselves the healthy relationships that really help us see God the way that we believe the scriptures call us to see God, and we have to have healthy boundaries with people who don't help us to see God that way. Sometimes we have relationships that become toxic because they actually shape a negative view of God, and we have to figure out how to navigate that, how to create boundaries around that. So, you know, the Bible is the norm that norms all norms. So it always goes back to this meta narrative, which again, the next three years, we're going to talk about the meta narrative, the meta narrative, the big story, where we come from, why that's important. And that's always something to hold that up against. So when we're navigating these relationships, we always have to come back to and bring it back to that space. So I want to close out with this quote from C.S. Lewis. I just was reading his book, A Grief Observed, about how he was processing his wife's untimely death. And it is in tragedies and, and suffering that we often end up really having to look at our image of God. So he says, images of the holy easily become holy images. So that's this idea of the icon becomes the idol, right? The image of God actually becomes a holy image that we worship. He uses the word sacrosanct. It becomes something that's ritual in and of itself. 
So he goes on to say, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He's the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that the shattering is one of the makes of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. So he's actually saying what we were just talking about. When Jesus came, his very presence in our life actually blows apart the previous ideas of God intentionally so that we're forced to kind of reimagine, 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 and correct our view mm, of God. Wow, I love that's Yeah, that's a really powerful quote. The idea of him needing to shatter those images or ideas that we have of him that are not correct. I know we're going to jump into Genesis 1 at some point and the idea of us being made in his image, but I think even we, how easy it is for us to make God in our image or in the image that we desire him to be or construct this idea of him that fits our paradigm or worldview or culture. But yeah, I love the idea of him needing to shatter those illusions for us to actually truly find him. So thank you so much, Dave, and to all of you for listening and joining this journey that we're on. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm way down here, I get a better view of this boundless world.